1: Hey everyone, it's Reid. We spend a lot of time talking about voters, older voters, middle-aged voters, younger voters, who we don't really spend a lot of time talking about their generations, who they are, and what it is the world means to them. I hope you'll learn as much as I did from today's episode about how Americans see the world and see our country. And now, on with the show. <music> Welcome back to The Lincoln Project. I'm your host, Reed Galen. Today, I'm joined by Dr. Jean Twanke, professor of psychology at San Diego State University. She is the author of more than 180 scientific publications and books, and her research has been covered in numerous outlets, including Time, The New York Times, The Washington Post, and NBC News. Her new book is Generations, the real differences between Gen Z, Millennials, Gen X, Boomers, and Silence, and what they mean for America's future and it's available wherever fine books are sold. Today she's coming to us from beautiful San Diego, California. Dr. Twangy, welcome to the show.
2: Thanks very much.
1: So I found your book fascinating. I'm a proud Gen Xer. So as you say at the beginning of the book, and you are absolutely right, I spent a lot more time in deep thought about my own cohort than others, but I thought it was a great exposition about So many of the things that I think we take for granted or we believe are sort of stereotypical about the various generations. But, you know, one of the things that you talk about early on and then again throughout the book is the idea that what an impact technology has had on the generations. You start with the silent generation right there. You know, they're after the greatest generation, my grandparents, right, but before the boomers. You know, they're sort of stuck in their own weird middle, like the Gen Xers of my generation are. But before we talk about the, how technology affected each generation, I just like to say I can't imagine that there's ever been greater technological change, good, bad, and indifferent, than there has been in the 80 years between, say, 1945 and today. And I guess my question is is it possible that the human brain? can't move as fast as all that technology now i know you're not a neurologist so it's an unfair question but i just want to get your sense of not only the breadth of the technological change but how fast it's happened
2: yeah absolutely the technological change has been just really accelerating the spaces between the generations have gotten smaller i think it's also one of the biggest reasons why i think we have a bigger generation gap right now than we've had since, say, the late 60s when the boomers were not understood by their silent and greatest generation parents. So maybe one reason you know, why this is just such a strange cultural moment right now that smartphones and social media have kind of gotten ahead of the human brain in a lot of ways.
1: You know, I think about that, right? You talk about the greatest generation and their boomer kids. You know, my grandmothers, both of whom were born in homes without electricity and running water they were basically born gene in the 16th century they die in the 21st century you know 90 years on or so about for both of them you know i just remember you you refer to this stuff and it and it sort of makes you nostalgic i guess is the right word right my generation remembers you know the phone on the wall in the kitchen four television channels, I guess, if you counted the weird UHF thing that you had to tune on the television, right? That, you know, you talk about, we roamed the neighborhood till dark. We rode our bikes without helmets. We did all of that stuff. I'm a proud verified and, you know, latchkey kid. And when you mention like afternoon cartoons, like I can remember all of them, right? You came home from school. I think we got out of school at 345. I walked home. I was home by 415 usually. And it was afternoon cartoons until my parents got home. And I'm an only child, weird I know for that generation. Till six thirty or seven at night. And now I can't even imagine I'm working out of my home and I do most days.
2: Yeah, I mean it's a different thing. And you know, Gen X is known as the Latchkey Kid Generation. It started with boomers though, and it continued, you know, into part of the millennials, but then something shifted. It became much more important in the culture to protect your children, to make sure that they were watched at every moment, to make sure the kids didn't walk home alone from school. And it's kind of an irony that we ended up in an era with more women working, more people who had kids, you know, both parents were in the workplace, yet it was no longer acceptable to leave kids by themselves.
1: let me ask you this question. In your research, were kids demonstrably less safe or are they demonstrably less safe now Than they were 35 years ago when I was walking home from third grade? Or is it just the idea that, oh my God, did we really let all these kids sort of run amok for 20 years? And we've got, you know, we let the string out too far.
2: A lot of it really comes back to one of the downstream effects of technology, which is what's called the slow life strategy. Times and places where people live longer and education takes longer to finish. Parents tend to make the choice to have fewer children and nurture them more carefully. So every stage of the life cycle slows down. So for kids, it means just less independence, more protection. And then for teens, it means things that Gen Xers don't understand at all, like teens not really wanting to get their driver's license.
1: Baffles me. Right, exactly.
2: Most Gen Xers, even a lot of millennials are like, wait, what? I mean, I did one interview once of a young man who said, well... I didn't get my driver's license at 16 or in high school at all, actually, because my parents didn't push me to get my driver's license. Like, what do you mean your parents didn't push you? It's supposed to be the other way around. It's supposed to be the teen pushing and then the parents saying no. They also don't get jobs or drink alcohol or go on dates as much as Gen Xers did at the same age. So it's just this slowing down, it's slower development that has its advantages, probably for safety, terms of, you know, injuries and deaths and so on for kids and teens are way down. However, it has a downside, you know, then what happens when they go out into the world and they just haven't had those experiences with independence and with decision-making.
1: Well, you noted one thing, because I want to spend a fair amount of time on Gen Z, so we'll get back to them. But you noted one thing that I thought was really interesting, which is you always say, well, you know, in my day, right, every generation sees the generations that come after it as softer. And you said, well, that's because they are.
2: I mean, it depends on how you define softer. But if you say, you know, less likely to be able to survive without technology, then yes, that's absolutely true.
1: Right. And, you know, don't have to go to work at a coal mine at 13, right? Or the Triangle Shirtwaist Company. And the idea of with every succeeding generation, right, what becomes acceptable from workplace culture, which I think is moving in the right direction, but also Gene, it feels like that's sort of mixed with this whole idea, like what the acceptable bounds of discourse are, what's considered humorous, right? What can get you in trouble is also far narrow because as you said, and I'm going to paraphrase this, I'll probably get it a little bit wrong, is no one has ever wanted to tell you what they think so more and never have they been more fragile.
2: Yeah. So we can see this in like big surveys of college students that have been done for decades that Students today are more likely to say that you should ban quote extreme speakers on campus, that you should have more restrictions on speech. Comedians talk about this a lot, that many of them say they won't tour college campuses because they feel like there's just too many things that they can't make jokes about because it'll be taken as offensive.
1: In your book and in the research, it shows that through every succeeding generation since the silence, there's been an uptick in mental health issues but it spikes in 2012 and and you start talking about this is really when you know the smartphone really came into its own because i remember when i was a freshman in college you could go to the internet but you had to go to the freshman library the undergraduate library in austin texas to get on the internet and there were like eight websites and none of us knew what to do with it and we had an email address but none of us knew who to write to but you know by the time i'm a sophomore i can go to the Perry Castaneda library online. I don't even have to go to the library anymore. But that was different than the iPhone or the smartphone, which is even up until 2009, the most advanced thing I had was a BlackBerry, which got email and made calls. But once that iPhone, once that smartphone thing came, and it really took a few years to mature, it changed everything, right? It changed our lives irrevocably. But it appears in your research that there tended to be a correlating rise in mental health issues as well.
2: There's a couple, you know, threads here. So one is you just think about the smartphone, you're right, that progression of technology that the smartphone could be carried everywhere. It was more possible to just kind of constantly be on the phone. It could interfere or, you know, be taken out in social situations. It tended to emphasize a lot of, you know, communication, not just texting anymore, but also social media and other ways to communicate. So it started to replace face-to-face social interaction, did that first among teens, then among young adults, and then kind of slowly moved up the age scale. And, you know, I first kind of got the inklings of this through, you know, completely different data looking at the mental health trends. So just kind of all of a sudden around 2012 and these big national data sets that I work with, more teens started to say they felt left out, that they felt lonely, that they felt like they couldn't do anything right, that their life wasn't enjoyable. And then they kept going. Those indicators of loneliness and depression just kept going up. So by 2019, for example, even before the pandemic, clinical-level depression among teens had doubled. And it started end of 2012. That's when the majority of Americans owned a smartphone. Social media use among teens moved from being relatively optional to almost mandatory. It's also when social media changed. Facebook bought Instagram around that time. You got the like button. There was just so much more emphasis on the visual social media. It wasn't just messages anymore. And then it just went from there.
1: And, you know, the millennials probably in Gen Z, probably most affected by that. But did you see any in your research, did you see any effect on older Americans, whether or not they're middle age or approaching, you know, elderly status?
2: Well, if you look at the trends in the last, say, 15 years, the rise in depression starts with teens so they like 12 to 17 year olds then a couple of years later it shows up among young adults then a few years after that around 2015 you start to get a rise in depression and poor mental health among 26 to 34 year olds so that's mostly going to be millennials and you don't really see much over the age of 35 in terms of mental health at least in that time period there's not much change so it seems to have had the biggest effect On the youngest people, but it has started to kind of move up the age scale. So now we're seeing millennials have poor mental health as well, which is especially striking because as teens, millennials had better mental health than Gen Xers did at the same age. Yeah, I mean, there's a lot of factors, but at least for teens, what you really see is as time online steadily increased, they started to spend a lot less time with their friends face to face. So that time they used to spend hanging out with friends in real time and, in-person seemed to be replaced by social media and other online interaction, they also started to spend less time sleeping. So those are two things that are really crucial for mental health. I'm often asked about this, so I'll mention it. A lot of people have had the theory, oh, you know, the mental health issues and then, you know, the decline in kids hanging out with each other, it's because they have more homework. They do not have more homework. They do not spend more time on homework. In these same surveys, there's questions about that, and that's not the case.
1: dot com slash Lincoln Odoo modern management made simple Americans probably since the founding maybe even before right maybe even since the the first colonists got here you know the Americans have always fancied this sort of rugged individualism it's not so rugged anymore but the individualism seems to be increasing generation over generation over generation but if you're an individual who has less person-to-person contact, more digital contact, but the content that you're receiving makes you feel bad about yourself, then it seems like you could be a very lonely individualist in a real hurry.
2: That's exactly what has happened, you know, particularly for Gen Z. It's one of the byproducts of technology, more emphasis on the self. But then if you're a 13-year-old girl spending a ton of time on Instagram, and okay, I'm supposed to feel good about myself, and that's the most important thing. That's what individualism is taught. And then what do you see? You see all of these influencers and people who have photoshopped their bodies, who of course look better than you know 99% of the population, and almost 100 if they photoshopped themselves. So it, it leads to that that feeling of of insecurity and you know self esteem. Sure enough, has gone down during that era. You think about the experience of teens now, particularly teen girls, it's not that surprising that you see these huge levels of depression.
1: You also talked about, you mentioned it earlier that, you know, as we talk about Gen Z, they don't drink as much, they don't smoke as much, they don't do drugs as much, they're not having as much sex in high school, those things that were considered rites of passage decades ago part of being sort of the teenage adventure part, which also goes back to the sort of driver's license, right? Like, how do I get out of my parents' house as quickly as I possibly can? So is all this stuff related to that? Because, you know, there's this assumption that, you know, okay, marijuana is legal now, so all the kids must be smoking pot. You see alcohol consumption going down, and you think, okay, well, maybe they don't drink as much because they're smoking more pot, but that doesn't seem to be true either, So, is it what I'm afraid of seeing in my own kids just that like everybody's just sitting in their room staring at a blue screen all day? Is that what's taking up the time?
2: Yeah. I mean, it's incredible amounts of time. The last survey that Common Sense Media did in, I think it was 2021, nine and a half hours
1: with screens per day. Right. So they're sleeping two hours less than they are consuming something. And I guess my question is at what point? do we all as a country, you know, as a society have to say, you know, this stuff is really not good for us because this, these are digital cigarettes.
2: Yeah, I mean, that's one way to look at it. And it's tough because there are, of course, huge benefits to technology. And, you know, especially smartphones and the internet, even social media, which, you know, has a bigger link to depression than say gaming or TV or some of the other you know, uses of technology or just kind of general smartphone use Even social media, especially for adults, you can certainly make arguments for some benefits, maybe not to mental health, but for other reasons. Yet, you know, this is the issue because you can't have too much of a good thing. And I think that's exactly what has happened with technology. We've gotten sucked into this life of being on the screen. You take it to excess and it's just not good. It's just not good for mental health. It's not good for physical health. And young people are bearing the brunt of that.
1: Well, and also you, you mentioned something about, and I think that I probably started noticing this, I'm going to say, Gene, I started noticing it 10 or 15 years ago, maybe I'm just imagining that, of you mentioned things like safe spaces and trigger warnings and all of these sorts of things, which again, I just scratched my head on it because you say, you know, younger Americans, right, of the last couple of generations, not only want physical safety. They also want psychological safety. I guess my point is like, who doesn't? But there's a difference between that and being unwilling and unable to accept any sort of emotional input that doesn't agree with you. And then I'm not quite sure where to go here, Gene, because it's like they're already depressed and they can't handle more sort of negative inputs, even though that's what life oftentimes is, whether you want it to be or not.
2: Yeah. And I think this is where there's a huge generational divide, because I think there's a lot of Gen Xers who say, hey, you know, the way that we're going to solve problems is by talking it through. And we should be able to talk about these things and we should be able to have speakers come to campus who you might disagree with and we need to preserve free speech, and the best cure for speech you may not agree with is more speech, and if you put restrictions on it, then they're gonna come for you next. You say, okay, you can't say this that I don't agree with, but then they're gonna try to restrict the speech about things you do agree with next. And then on the other side, you have millennials, and perhaps particularly Gen Z, who says, "You know, nope, some of this stuff around racism and sexism has been going on for too long, and we can't believe it's still around and we had to shut it down and that's not about free speech it's about being offensive and shutting this down so there's this huge generational divide and i think it breaks there it breaks between generally boomers and gen x on one side and millennials and gen z on the other you know a lot of these scuffles around free speech that's how it's been it's been you know an editor or a ceo from those older generations on one side and then the young employees on the other who end up you know, with these disagreements.
1: I remember working on a political campaign once, and these would have been young millennials at the time, Gene. And the candidate came out and said something more conservative than several members of the staff were okay with. And I remember talking to one of these young staffers and they said, well, I just don't agree with that. And I said, okay, you don't have to agree with it. Well, I don't think they should agree with it either. I said, "Well." they're the candidate. And when you work on a political campaign, the deal is you sort of subsume your own belief system, at least publicly to what they believe, because that's why you're here. And they're like, but I don't want to do that. I'm like, well, then you have a choice. But they didn't like the idea that I said that the choice was, if you didn't like it, you could leave.
2: Yep. This is also where kind of workplaces in general see this. And I mean, this has been going on for a while. It's not, even unique to the last five or ten years, like some of the stuff we've been talking about, but there is this conflict between individualism, which is what our culture has taught our kids, and many parents have taught their kids, and then they get into the workplace, and whoa, it's not all about them anymore, so it's very interesting the messages that you know we give young people in this culture, and then you know guess what, they believe it, and then they end up often in situations as adults where some of that individualistic messaging doesn't really serve them well.
1: So I want to bring together the individual piece of this with the slow life piece of this, right, which is people are getting older later, I guess, and then bring in the demography of it. So I went to two weddings last year, Gene, and I hadn't been to two weddings in a year, probably since I was in my early 20s when my first batch of friends started getting married immediately after college. Both couples were about 30. Both sets of vows were written by themselves. Both officiants were a friend of theirs. And the vows were very much, I don't know if it's an AI program, Gene, or what, but both sets of vows for both couples were very much about, I love you for these reasons, but I'm committed to making sure you have the ability to be the best person you can be, which is, you know, I found interesting in both ceremonies, because I was like, wow, that's certainly not, you know, the sort of standard thing I did. And then you bring that into, and if part of us being our best selves individually, but together means we want to travel, we want to have these experiences, and maybe kids aren't on the table, that's a more and more common occurrence.
2: It is. And interesting, you should bring up kids because that's come up recently in several polls, because as we know, the birth rate is down and probably going to keep going down. And when they've done polls of young adults who do not want to have children and ask them why, one of the top responses is personal freedom. That's a very individualistic response that I want to be able to do what I want to do.
0: This episode is brought to you by Shopify. Do you have a point of sale system you can trust or is it a real POS? You need Shopify for retail. From accepting payments to managing inventory, Shopify POS has everything you need to sell in person. Go to shopify.com/system all lowercase to take your retail business to the next level today. That's shopify.com/system.
1: I was thinking about this as I was writing Gene because we are, after all, animals, right? I'd like to think on most days smarter than the average bear, and I thought that there was a drive innately to procreate. But it seems like we now have this generation of American kids who are like, I don't care what nature says. I don't want a kid.
2: Yeah. And, you know, most people will probably still have children. It's not that the birth rate's going to go to zero or anything like that. It's just as it's continued to go down, you end up with this inversion. You end up with demographics like what Japan has, where there's so many more older people than younger. And then, you know, programs like Social Security get called into question. There's not going to be enough younger working people to support older people. So then you throw in the declining birth rate, which I think, by the way, is going to keep going down by every indication. So one reason for that is the millennials who are mostly in childbearing ages now in the top part of Gen Z. Um, Millennials as 18-year-olds said that they wanted to have kids, that it was likely they wanted to have children, but they didn't. And Gen Z broke that trend of... The really, really steady percentage of 18-year-olds who said they wanted to have kids. So this one survey that I work with, it's high school seniors, it goes back to 1976. You know, how likely it is that you'll have children, and even in an ideal world, would you want them? Both of those have been high and stable for decades until about the middle of the 2010s when it starts to transition to Gen Z, and then they start to go down. So millennials still said they wanted to have kids, but then didn't, Gen Z isn't even saying that at 18. People in general have kids when they feel optimistic about the future. And Gen Z does not feel optimistic about the future. And I think that's one of the most concerning things that I wrote about, was that it's not just depression on an emotional level, it's also this almost nihilism and pessimism about the future, about the country. And when you have that with young adults, I think that's pretty concerning.
1: Well, and you know, it is nihilism, but how did the nihilism take hold so quickly?
2: So I it's a couple things. One possibility is because of this change, especially for young people, of a lot more time online, a lot less time sleeping, a lot less time face-to-face. That's a formula for depression. So with depression, we know from cognitive behavioral therapy, the most common therapy for depression observes, depression isn't just about feeling sad, it's about how you think. So if you start being depressed, you see the world in a negative light. You see everything in a negative light. So that kind of tilts things negative. Then you combine that with an online system that rewards negativity. Negative news gets clicks, tends to be what people respond to you, especially on Facebook and Twitter. Then we're all marinating in this toxic soup of negativity because that's what wins online. And then we all lose.
1: And I mean, I, you know, just I've got I've got two kids um, that are at the tail end of Gen Z, right? They're the youngest members of Gen Z. And Gene, I'm always both fascinated and concerned about how much more they know about what's going on in the world than I guarantee you I did when I was 10 years old. Now, I, when I was 10 years old, I remember the Challenger explosion. I, I can tell you exactly where I was, exactly who I was with, exactly what I was doing when I saw that. Right. But on any other given day, I was just a 10 year old goofball hanging out with my buddies and playing war in our big neighborhood, going down to the floodplain. And is it just the technology again? Is it even if your kid doesn't have a smartphone, just the osmotic effect of all of this stuff being around is affecting them like this?
2: I don't know. I've heard people say that over the years. Oh, it's you know because of all of the excess information and all of the news and so on. I think that's more for young adults. Um, You talk to most high school students, they're not paying a ton of attention to the news and middle school students even less. But there is certainly more attention to that paid now. I mean, because of more political polarization, for one thing, it's just talked about more, I think, than it used to be. So there's some of that, but I think that shouldn't be overplayed too much.
1: As we're looking forward here, you, you know, you end your book with the future, but I want to I get to politics before I get to that. So you talked about the sort of breakdown with more conservative slash Republican. You've got the silent generation, baby boomers, Generation X, which makes me upset. But then I said, you know what? I used to be a Republican. So I guess that makes sense. I'm the outlier, not my generation. And then you've got the millennials and Gen Z, which are most certainly very big in their own right, and they are more left of center. But I think especially among Gen Z, not necessarily self-identified as Democrats, right? They're left of center, maybe even progressive, but I don't think they necessarily like that label. So how can two generations who don't want kids, who see the world as, you know, and again, maybe this is more Gen Z as nihilists, you know, they've shown up in great numbers in 2020 and again in 2022. How can we, I guess, help one make sure that they continue to be engaged at a civic level And again, without trying to be condescending, because that's not what I want to do. Nobody likes to be condescended to say, this is your world. Yes, we might have messed it up, but gang, we're not going to be around long enough to fix it for you.
2: I think this is our biggest challenge. I think our biggest challenge as a society and in politics right now is to look at this young generation who, yes, their voter turnout is higher as young adults than it was for previous generations. So they are there. They are voting. They seem to be pretty politically engaged. But they're also extremely negative so one of the polls that i analyzed for the book that really knocked me out of my chair was one that asked do you think that major changes to the structure of american government are necessary gen z was the most likely to say yes to that three-fourths of them said yes to that do you think that american society is fair or unfair two-thirds of gen z said unfair and then are the founders of the United States better described as heroes or as villains? And 40% of Gen Z said villains. Only 10% of boomers said villains. So they're negative about what's going on right now. They're also negative about the founders of the country you know, 250 years in the past. So just this pervasive negativity. And that can turn on a dime because you know you can see it going a number of different ways, but the two main ones are this, the negative outcome, that this is nihilism or you know this is revolutionary and we're just going to tear it all down and start over. So maybe I'm biased as someone who's in her 50s but that doesn't sound like a good outcome to me. However, you know they are voting if they can channel that negativity into change preferably without tearing the whole government down, that might be a very good outcome. Then maybe we could, you know, get stuff done in a way that really hasn't happened as much as I think most people would like you know in politics in the last uh, 10 or 20 years right and we can get some good change it's just people are going to disagree on what the changes should be of course but political activism within the system that is a much better outcome than either complete nihilism and there's nothing we can do or let's tear it all down and start over
1: right and right now there are as many if not more Voters, right, of older cohorts, looking in the rearview mirror, saying, "Well, it used to be like that. I want it to be like that again, even though maybe I don't have much time on the road left." And the younger voters saying, "I can see what's ahead of me. I don't like it, but I haven't decided what I want to do about it yet."
2: That's what has to happen: is the coalition around what are we going to do, and then how can we change it without having to really damage our democracy?
1: Guys, the book is called Generations, The Real Differences Between Gen Z, Millennials, Gen X, Boomers, and Silence, and What They Mean for America's Future. Fabulously researched book. And I'll tell you, for so much data, Gene, eminently readable. Was there anything that surprised you with all the work that you put into this?
2: Oh, there were lots and lots of things. One was that Gen X does relatively well in terms of their mental health. It was a kind of rocky during teen years, young adulthood, and during middle age. Gen Xers, their mental health in some cases is better than boomers at the same age. So that's, you know, one encouraging sign. And that the other is that the narrative about how millennials are not doing well economically doesn't seem to be true anymore. That they took a big hit during the Great Recession, but that median incomes for 25 to 44 year olds really roared back. So even corrected for inflation, those incomes are at all time highs. And even wealth building where, you know, more student loans, it can be harder, wealth building among millennials has caught up to where gen xers and boomers were at the same age so a lot of millennials don't like that message for whatever reason they seem to have embraced the idea that their generation uh, really took a hit economically but i think you could definitely see this as good news that we have a lot of young adults who are doing fairly well economically
1: so gene where can we find your other work Online And anything else you'd like to share about the book or anything about the other work you do before we let you go?
2: I'm glad you said the book's readable. I don't want people to be intimidated by the, the fact that there are all the graphs. Um, there's lots of fun pop culture and all kinds of other stuff in there. So my website is com. So J-E-A-N-T-W-E-N-G-E.com. And that has my research and speak engagements and links to other things that I have written and All the good stuff.
1: All right. As always, gang, you can always find me on Twitter. I know, Gene, it's a cesspool. And TikTok, probably a bigger cesspool, at Reed Galen. And on Instagram, at Reed underscore Galen underscore LP. Dr. Gene Twangy. thanks for joining me. And everybody else, we'll see you next time. Thanks again to everyone for listening. Be sure to follow and subscribe to The Lincoln Project on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, Google, or however you listen. Don't forget to leave a five-star review. To connect with us, follow us on Twitter, at Project Lincoln, and for more information on our movement, to join our mailing list, subscribe to our newsletter, or make a contribution to our efforts, visit lincolnproject.us. If you want to message the podcast directly, please send an email to podcast at lincolnproject.us. And if you want to personally join the fight to save our nation's democracy, visit jointheunion.us. For the Lincoln Project, I'm Reed Galen. I'll see you on the next episode.